0: Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast-off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go? A podcast about the life cycle of stuff. I'm Sarah
1: and I'm Emily
0: and this week I'm going first and I'm going to talk about curses not as in curse words. We've already done a really awesome episode about curse words, so you should go back and talk and figure out where curse words go. I'm talking about actual curses, hexes, or jinxes. And they can either be spells, ill wishes on upon people, or pronouncements that you want misfortune to befall someone or something. So in the case, yeah, in the cases of spells, there's generally a ritual in which it is made. In the case of pronouncements or wishes, generally a supernatural force or gods are called upon to power the curse. So... In the case of spells, there's generally like a little bit of a ritual. And in the case of pronouncements or wi- or wishes, there's usually like supernatural force. And you use like, by the power of these demons, I curse you. One of those things.
1: Or like wishing on the first star you see. thats You're kind of assuming the star is powering the wish, I guess. I never thought about that.
0: Exactly. There needs to be some kind of power in it. So curses or something like them are very common in various cultures and religions throughout the world. People have made talismans and symbols to protect themselves from curses and the effects of them for as far back as we can really see and decipher from writings and from ancient peoples. So you might be familiar with the the eye symbol, the uh, evil eye symbol, with it's on a dark circular piece of glass. Usually it's on blue glass mm-hmm. and it's it's it looks like an eye it's two white lines generally with the black dot in the middle and that is to protect against the evil eye and that is from the ancient middle east that's been around for a long time and that's one of the examples of a symbol to protect you from curses so types of curses this was interesting i i had a hard time kind of parsing through all the stuff on the internet so I went to a good source a witch I love that witches have websites now and they can tell you various things this one is from the travelingwitchcom she had a very nice list of curses and quick curses and about curses so it, it was very fascinating so she lists quick curses and quick curses are the curses where you just Spur the moment, really fast. It's not really all that plain. You're just cursing them. I like to think of like an old Italian grandmother cursing, cursing you. So here's some quick curses. Spitting, you can spit on, in front of, behind, or on an object or person, and that will put the curse onto the, your quick curse onto them. There's the evil eye in this curse. You glare at the person (laughs) in such a way as to focus your ill intent towards them. And then, of course, there's written curses where you can write down the person's name and burn it, write the curse itself on a piece of paper, and then make sure it's near them or near the object that you want to curse, and that is where you put the curse. And then there's long curses, and I think when people think about Curses like the curse on Sleeping Beauty, this is the curse that you would think of. It's a lo- it's got a long game to it. Long curses are curses that are highly planned and generally backed by some kind of ritual or spell casting practices like collecting the target's hair, a possession close to them, or something with their likeness, like a picture. And this is the long game curse. This is the curse where you take a locket lock of the their hair you have a ritual you call upon the demons or whatever supernatural force or whatever force you want to have the curse behind it and then generally this curse is a long game like it's going to take a long time to either draw out or it took you a long time to do and it's highly planned hmm and so those were the two kind of curses that she went into. And then there's the object-bound or place-bound curses. And these curses are connected to a place or an object, as their name suggests. Sometimes the possession of the curse-laden object can have can have misfortune befall the new owners. The, the example I use is the Hope Diamond. If anyone oh. is familiar with the Hope Diamond, there's a legend that the Hope Diamond itself... As soon as you own it, as soon as you buy it, as soon as it comes into your possession, uh, misfortune will befall you or anyone in your family because you possess it because there's a curse on it. And then uh, there's a cursed place, maybe because someone, someone died or something terrible happened in that place, and the place may be haunted or creepy. So a good example of this, and I saw, I think it was the savvy traveler or some It it was something like that. Maybe it was the cursed traveler. He went to the suicide forest in Japan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this forest is the home to an unusual number of suicides every year in Japan. And it seems like people go there just to kill themselves and visitors to the forest who ha- don't have the intent of killing themselves have said that they when they go in they feel very uneasy it's very creepy they they just feel very like something's going to harm them maybe when they go into the forest and that is uh, an example of a cursed place something terrible happened there it is cursed and now whatever is in there and it's making people uncomfortable so you don't want to go there and apparently people do go there and they're just fine so I guess it really just depends if you're sensitive I have no idea
1: I've seen I've seen video of it and I just think it looks really beautiful but it is
0: very beautiful Yeah, it looks...
1: A weird botanist.
0: (laughs) I'd go there, too. I think it's really... It looks really pretty. I don't know if we have to do, like, a mental health check beforehand. Like, I'm okay. The spirits aren't going to try to convince me to hop off the cliff or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go into breaking curses. So it really depends on the curse. If it's a simple curse you can just have like a protection talisman or a simple ritual to cure you of the curse like bathing in salt water or something like that some curses may be time bound or elaborate enough that a certain criteria has to be met like in the case of sleeping beauty or like a princess kissing a frog to turn him back into a prince if the curse has bound the restless spirit of a dead person the curse may only be lifted by appeasing the spirit so the ritual or what you have to do really depends on the flavor of belief system that you may ascribe to or that the practitioner ascribed to so like a practitioner of african american hoodoo is likely to have a different ritual than a garden variety kitchen witch in dealing with curses or in making curses so where do broken curses go once you've finally gotten rid of them? And it was kind of hard to figure out. So, well, if the curse itself was bound energy, which we talked about earlier, it needed a supernatural force or some kind of ritual force or something like that. If you want to get metaphysical, that then that energy is then freed once you break the curse and is free to become something else because that's how energy works in the universe. In the case of the curse from a restless spirit, the spirit is then released and free to go wherever spirits go, depending upon your belief system, or maybe you don't believe in curses, you think it's all mumbo-jumbo, and nothing happens because curses don't exist. It just depends.
1: (laughs) I mean, it kind of sounds like what you believe isn't as important as what the curse or believes.
0: Yeah, Definitely,
1: versus the curse.
0: <laughs> so, some famous curses, and I never actually even heard of this curse until I came across it. Tecumseh's curse, or the curse of Tippecanoe. Have so heard,
1: heard of that one? No.
0: Yeah, if a U.S. president is elected in a year divisible by twenty, they are likely to die, or there will be an assassination attempt while the president is in office. Uh This was, yeah, this was thought to exist because of the pattern of presidential deaths in the 1800s to the 1900s. So there's actually a long list here. And I was like, what? Really? So presidents that were supposedly affected by this curse were William Saracen. He died of typhoid. Abraham Lincoln, he was assassinated. James Madison was assassinated. Warren G. Harding died of a heart attack. Franklin Roosevelt died of a cerebral hemorrhage. John F. Kennedy, we all know, was assassinated. Ronald Reagan was an attempted assassination. And George W. Bush was an assassination attempt again.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And they were all developed. I I didn't know this. And so I, I also earlier mentioned the Hope Diamond. So the Hope Diamond, if you're not familiar... It's a large 45-carat blue-gray diamond, very pretty, with a legend that supposedly anyone who possesses it, either it gets passed down in your family or you somehow... You somehow possess it. Misfortune will follow you. Whether or not the curse was made up to increase the publicity around the stone, the Hope diamond curse is still a well-known one. There's actually a list of people on Wikipedia who have supposedly died in connection with the diamond, including Marie Antoinette, who is well-known as being guillotined at the age of 37.
1: (laughs) I didn't realize she was that young.
0: Yeah, she was 37 years old. She had like nine children, didn't she? She had, I I think she had
1: three or four living children when she was killed, but mm-hmm. I think she lost at least one after they were born, and then she probably lost a pregnancy or two. She had a rough obstetric life.
0: She had a rough life in general, I I think. Yeah. And she was one of the possessors of the Hope Diamond, and she was guillotined at 37. Whether or not they're related, we don't know. (laughs) 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 And then there's the Tutankhamun's curse. This is the curse in the part of collection of the curse of the pharaohs. And I'm grouping the curse of the pharaohs um, together because there's pretty well-known, talked-about curses of whenever you dig up ancient tombs of ancient Egyptians, or anyone disturbs the burial sites, their supposedly terribleness will befall you, their misfortune, terribleness, death, will befall you for disturbing these sites. Tutankhamun's curse came about because the deaths of the people who were part of or involved in Howard Carter's team, the team who opened the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922, um, they, including uh, Sir Bruce Ingram, they all had terribleness def- befall them. Sir Bruce Ingram actually was given the gift of a mummified hand by one of Howard Carter's teams. I think it was Carter himself, with a curse inscribed on it. And shortly oh after. <laughs> right, who gives someone a mummified hand? Come with on. With a curse
1: on it. With the curse. Yeah, here on, it's you right go. there.
0: I love you. Here you go. Here's a mummified <laughs> cursed <at> hand. Shortly <laughs> after he took the hand home to use as a paperweight. His house burned down. <laughs>
1: you know what? That's what you get.
0: <laughs> and there were quite a few other curses. There was the curse of the Cubs. I, I didn't look too far into this, but apparently they 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 had a hundred year curse on them, and it was finally broken recently. So they could actually win a game, apparently. There, okay. There's a lot of curses out there, yeah. But two, two tongue comments hurt curses. Interesting because I, I group it with the curse of the pharaohs. It's a common one. And the, there's a lot of mummies out there, and they're probably, you know, bad ways that we got them. And I'll just leave it to Emily to finish that thought. <laughs>
1: because, I, oh, go ahead.
0: Uh, and I I wanted to thank the Traveling Witch. Her blog was fascinating about quick curses and, of course, wik- Wikipedia. Thank you.
1: Yeah, that's it is a pretty amusing world in which we live that witches have websites. And it makes I perfect sense.
0: It. I love it.
1: Uh, we should start following witches on Twitter, on our podcast yeah, Twitter course. account and Instagram. Agreed. Right on. So Sarah referenced... Me talking about mummies because I'm going to talk about where mummies go. And I think that I managed to open Microsoft Edge. (laughs) (laughs) I should do a where did Internet Explorer go?
0: Where did Exploder go?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So mummies and mummy curses are probably pretty close to as old as curses themselves. We've been, you know, we've been talking about kind of spooky things this month because it's October and that's kind of tis the season, and we've been talking about what it turns out to be a lot of universal concepts for humans. Like mummification is technically preserving a corpse from decay, and that's borderline a universal concept or a universal happenstance in human history and human cultures. Like we do it now. Or and we'll
0: Neander- Neanderthals seem to do it too.
1: Oh yeah, they did. They buried their dead. I don't know how much effort, well though they were frozen. So you can have that's actually a great introduction because you can have intentional mummies and naturally occurring mummies. And so living in an ice age climate would probably create a naturally occurring mummy. But for the mummies that we tend to think about, most of them are intentionally created. So mummy, or mumia, or mum, means bitumen, which is a type of, it's pitch, so it's like pine tar, basically. And poorly mummified Egyptian mummies turned black, and so it was thought that they were actually preserved in pitch. And so that's how the name came about. But it's super common to embalm at least something of a human, And preserving just bones isn't typically considered mummification, but uh, preserving just about anything else is. Mummies can range from people's bodies being unintentionally frozen or dried out or bog bodies, they're actually, they're sort of like pickled, all the way to what was called the most perfect mummies of Egypt. And then actually, and this is something that doesn't get talked about in... Western history classes as much which is a shame because it's really interesting but uh, Incan mummies were considered superior in terms of preservation quality to Egyptian mummies so mummification has been considered an art form worldwide and you can actually like I said we'll get to more modern mummification soon including things like cryopreservation and embalming so we'll start with Egyptian mummies. Sarah referenced the Tutankhamun's Curse. That was a really famous excavation of a fairly intact tomb of a royal Egyptian. One of the reasons that that was so remarkable is because a not uncommon fate of Egyptian mummies was grave robbers messing with the corpses. And they might... Be looking to take things from their tombs. It was very common. It's common all over the place, but it was particularly common in Egypt for people to be buried with useful things. Even you know, non- non-wealthy people were buried with useful things. Even if they weren't necessarily jewelry or riches, they might be nice pots or you know a handy blanket or whatever. <laughs> still useful, sometimes more useful. Sometimes you don't need a necklace. You need a blanket, a blanket, (laughs) but then, you know, higher status individuals often had higher status graves. And then they also had more stuff buried with them and grave robbers worldwide. That's another universal concept that we've had. We've either trying to steal corpses or what the corpses have, are, in uh, you know, they have a lot of ingenuity. They would go particularly in high status Egyptian individuals' tombs through death traps and all sorts of snares and poisons and death pits and things to get to all the stuff in the tomb. And the reason that people tend to be buried with stuff is either because they need to pay their way to the afterlife or they will need things in the afterlife. It's kind of like, like going to college. <laughs> you know, you're going to need some money and a blanket and maybe like you know, a surge protector and some hangers. <laughs> you got <laughs> to have it with you. Now, Egypt is not the only place that this happens, but it's a place where it happens, not constantly, but a lot. Where you bury anyone in Egypt and they're going to at least partially mummify because it's so hot and dry there. And Egypt ha- is a, both a massive country. I think I think it... We've, I've mentioned this before, but maps of Africa that we are often introduced to in the United States are not the proper projection to show how big Africa actually is. And then that also means that Egypt, which is not the largest country in Africa, but it is a large country in Africa... Which, and it also has a big old river, so it had a lot of people for a long time. You know, very old society. It has a lot of mummies. And so <laughs> trade in Egyptian mummies has been a thing for a long time. It was super common in, and this is going to get a little gross, so if you have a delicate stomach, maybe skip like 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, if you wanted to give someone a mummified hand with a curse on it as a gift.
1: I mean, that's one of the things that people did. So <laughs> in the Middle Ages, it was very common in Europe, largely because of communication between Turkish interactions in the Ottoman Empire, which was also which also sort of contained Egypt at the time. And then, you know, crusaders would bring stuff back. Uh, The trade of powdered mummy. So, powdered people used for medicine. It was thought to heal broken bones and fix other stuff. And it was just powdered, preserved people. It's really gross.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Particularly because it fell into the ongoing issue of human body trade where... It's not uncommon for you to kind of run out of what you need, and so you make what you need. And unfortunately, that means dead people just to trade in dead bodies. And so people were killed and then ground up and then sold to Europeans to try to, you know, heal their wounds. This continued at least until the 16th century, which is the 1500s. I I find that. I have always have to do the mental math of 16th century, 1500s. Okay. But it probably happened a lot longer because, you know, what a peasant does in their peasant town or, or a shyster doctor that's traveling with some powdered kings or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, that might not be recorded, especially if there's something going on like a massive war. Maybe you're not paying attention to what dust is being rubbed on your war injuries. So, oh, Egyptian mummies were common enough that when there was a massive cache of mummified cats found at one point, and I believe this was in the 19th century, but it could have been a little earlier, uh, the cats were ground up and sent to Europe for fertilizer. So... Those are some of the ways. Oh, also, uh, there's a color, a pigment called mummy brown. And that is a brown pigment that comes from adding liquids to make paint to powdered mummy. What? Yeah. Oh. It's just, it's, it's, I guess we just have a very different concept of, like, what dead bodies mean now.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think- just, I'm still stuck on the mummified cats uh, being used as fertilizer. I'm just thinking, is that the reason that we had all those world wars? Is we used to, the cats as fertilizer and the curses? Are- <laughs> that's what I've been
1: thinking. Isn't <laughs> the Hope Diamond in the Smithsonian in D.C.?
0: Yes, it is.
1: Maybe that's why everything's such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so... Maybe it is, but Sarah has given us the guide of where, how to break the curse. (laughs) We need, we need to go to the witches. We got to go online and talk to them, email.
0: Exactly. They know. They know.
1: So I, I mentioned that Turkish control of Egypt meant European trade with mummies. Napoleon in the 19th century conquered Egypt. And then in the 19th century, Egyptology became insanely popular. It was not uncommon to purchase mummies, unwrap them, and have observing sessions at your aristocratic parties.
0: Nothing says colonialism. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Like having a party after you've dug up some culture's mummy and had a party around it.
1: It also meant this sort of Egyptomania meant a lot of mummies ended up in private collections, and then often donated to museums or universities by all kinds of methods, including purchase, smuggling, outright theft. Like, uh, in 1928, which is the 20th century, the that was the year the entirety of the contents of Tutankhamun's tomb had been emptied out. And those contents didn't stay in Egypt. And some things have been repatriated, but a lot of them haven't. So... Egyptian mummies have been a source of all sorts of things, but also in sort of cultural phenomenon and consumables, unfortunately. But they've also been moved to places where I am sure it was not something that was sort of discussed prior to death or after death by descendants as to being okay to put them there. And then there's sort of, because this was such a big thing, there's actually some apocrypha about mummies and using mummies for everyday activities. Uh, Mark Twain, who was honestly a notorious storyteller, which is a nice way of saying liar, <laughs> is <laughs> he was really, you know, good at it. He, and he is often cited as having witnessed steam engines being fueled by imported Egyptian mummies. Which what? Is, it yeah, it's crap, but it's been I I've found several sources citing that as credible and then s- several, sizes, cites, several sources being like, you know, he told this story. He told a lot of stories. So,
0: and you mean it's like they put the mummy in this, like where the coal would go, they put the mummy in there? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought maybe he was at the steering wheel. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, but he's dead. Like how?
1: That'd be a good movie. <laughs>
0: The the what is it those those popular movies now the the mummy's curse or whatever yeah with Brendan Fraser like but they don't they don't want to kill anyone now they want to drive steamboats I'm
1: not sure they're just trying to live their second their afterlives man right there was also a rumor and I saw this in more than one place of writing during the Civil War of various things like journalists taking notes and things on bandages from mummies. And I think they were citing a shortage of paper, but that's crap. That's just nonsense.
0: (laughs) It'd be terrible paper. I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It would make bad paper if it was new, let alone the older stuff. So, Part of my bringing those things up is to point out that mummy integration in terms of everyday use was enough that making up stories about them being used as fuel for steamboats and used as paper was kind of a funny joke, but some people lent it credence. They might still. Next one is also gross. So if you've skipped ahead, you might want to skip ahead again. This is the last, like, really gross one. <laughs> Second to last gross one. I'll, I'll mention another gross one. Anyway, mellified man. So this is something that, like, happened but didn't happen the way history tells it. It's a human preserved in honey and then eaten. What? So the first part has happened, like, verifiably Preserving bodies in honey is a reasonable way to mummify them if right. you can get enough honey. Honey has a very low water activity, and so it doesn't really rot. And it can, as people sort of, corpses absorb it, and you become infused with it, they also don't rot. And so that's been done in Buddhist communities, Assyrian traditions. Alexander the Great was said to have been mummified with honey and then displayed floating in the stuff. So... It's not, the first part of this story of mellified man is not irrational. It would be expensive or like hard to do because, you know, beekeeping is an old art, but a lot of times just finding the bees was the way you got the honey. Anyway, the the place we got these stories, we got these stories from two places. In the 16th century, there were Chinese writings regarding an Arabic tradition of someone sacrificing themselves toward the end of their life by consuming only honey, And then dying, and then being preserved in honey, and then a while later being eaten to cure things. That didn't happen. There's also an ancient story of grave robbers eating honey from burial near a pyramid, so presumably this is Egypt, because there have been only a few different cultures that have discussed pyramids. And then they were eating honey from a burial near the pyramid, because honey lasts I'm not going to say forever, but a long time. Longer than Twinkies. (laughs) They ate the honey, because why not? You know, it's probably hard to get a hold of honey. And then they found a mummified child at the bottom of the pot. Oh. Now that one I could see potentially kind of happening. Or some guy telling a story to impress and gross out his friends. Just because they weren't trying to eat the kid. There was just a kid. Mellified man kind of happened, but nobody ate them intentionally
0: so there was a so i'm imagining winnie the pooh oh no <laughs> he's eating honey and then he's eating the honey and he's eating the whole thing of honey and he realizes there's something at the bottom and then there's christopher robin at the bottom it's kind of like maybe he fell in <laughs> like did he fall in is that what happened and no, then it-
1: it's not uncommon. I didn't want to dig too deeply into mummification intentions, but mummifying children in a lot of cultures has been very deliberate and more elaborate than mummifying adults because children, A, uh, you know, infant death and child death is an unfortunate and not uncommon part of human history, but also because yeah. children were considered very special, even if they died.
0: Well, they are special. Yeah.
1: Once you have a kid, you tend to care about them.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: So it was probably intentionally placed in there.
0: Okay. It wasn't like a horrible accident. Okay. (laughs) Sorry for anybody that loves Christopher Robin. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting... So I've talked
1: a little bit about intentional mummies. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about naturally occurring mummies and where they end up. Naturally occurring mummies are almost always accidental. Uh, A great example is bog bodies. Bog bodies are found throughout Europe. There are some famous ones, including like Talland Man, and the I'm going to mispronounce this, but Harold Scare Woman. A lot of these folks were killed. They were either murdered, so extrajudicially killed, they were killed as criminal executions, or it was a ritual killing because the people that have been found in bogs and then the bodies were just thrown in bogs the yeah. people who have been found in bogs have been all kinds of social statuses some have had like very manicured fingers obvious signs of being well fed and then some have been very young and like you know like teenagers or whatever and not well fed and obviously Treated like criminals. Whether or not they are criminals, we won't go into that. But bogs preserve bodies because they are acidic and anaerobic. Anaerobic means that there is a very low oxygen environment in bogs. It has to do with the moss that grows in them and stuff like that. And they preserve soft tissues, but oddly not bones. So bog bodies tend to look kind of like somebody stepped on them a lot because they don't have much in the way of bones left. But you can tell like what they ate, because it preserves the food in their stomach. You can tell, again, whether or not their fingernails were manicured. You can see the hair, like stubble on men's faces, all sorts of details. A lot of these bodies, when they're found, tend to look so normal, other than being kind of smushed, that the police will be called because people are worried that they've found a murder victim. And I mean, they might've found a murder victim, but their murderers probably died centuries earlier. So nobody's going to do anything about it. So the police will often be called and then universities and sometimes re- museums with a research branch will end up bringing the bodies back to wherever jurisdictionally they have control over them. A lot of them are then studied. So the way that human bodies are studied, especially if they're older, varies depending on where they are, whether or not their descendants want them to be studied, or if their descendants are not powerful enough to stop the bodies from being moved and studied. And then also, you know, the general best practices of the time. So a lot of times now mummified bodies are not taken apart like they used to be. Like they wouldn't be unwrapped and reviewed at a cocktail party anymore. At least not, <laughs> you know not if the researchers are professionals. <laughs> and then some of these bog bodies have been reinterred. The the Harold scare woman was thought inaccurately to be a Danish queen. So she was interred at the St. Nikolai Church, and she's just some lady. They don't, they're do not they not entirely who, sure who she is, but she's not a queen. So they're either preserved at universities for study, or they might be reinterred if they're considered socially important, or I guess if you could find descendants and wanted to give them the option to figure out what to do with them. So that's one example of unintentional mummies. The Guanajuato mummies of Mexico are particularly interesting because they kind of made their own museum, which sounds weird for mummies to make their own museum, but I'll explain.
0: Well, they're, (laughs) you know, apparently driving steamboats now, so...
1: I mean, I'm not going to hold them back.
0: Nope.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to touch them at all. (laughs) I don't want a mummy curse. In 1833, there was a massive cholera outbreak in Mexico, and there were a large number of bodies. And a lot of people couldn't afford the taxes and fees to perpetually bury their loved ones. So a lot of them were buried, then disinterred later on, and stored in a nearby building. The climate of Guanajuato allows for natural mummification. There are a few other parts of Mexico that allow for that as well. So the bodies were really well preserved, both in burial and then in this warehouse. It was just hot and dry. And they started attracting tourists, just this storage building. The building was converted to El Museo de las Momias in, I think, the 60s. And there are at least 59 mummies on display as of 2007. I think there are actually more than that. And they're still in this nearby building near the cemetery where they had been previously interred. So they kind of made their own museum. We've also got frozen bodies. Parts of the world are cold, believe it or not. Uh, What? Are you sure? I've heard tell. Okay. (laughs) Every time I tell people in North Carolina that I'm from Michigan, I get pretty much the only reaction I get is, ooh, it's cold there.
0: Um, (laughs) They're not wrong.
1: I mean, you know, some of the time they definitely aren't. (laughs) (laughs) it's just funny when it's july and i will tell people that and they'll go oh it's cold there it's like
0: not right now like you're talking about siberia (laughs) yeah
1: and actually i've got siberian mummies on my list of frozen bodies
0: okay nice
1: so there's the group called the greenland bodies and i'm gonna try to pronounce the location where they were found and i'm sorry in advance kilak it mummies So they were a group of indigenous people found frozen in Greenland and they were exceptionally well-preserved. There were two kids and six adults. They were intentionally buried and because they were so well-preserved, they're actually on display in a national museum In it's either Nuuk or Nuuk. Again, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. (laughs) I don't speak into it. And so they ended up in a museum like most do, but at least they ended up in a museum Where they were buried. There's also, you can get a lot of information from frozen corpses, specifically because frozen corpses often don't have time to dry out. And I'll get to more of this later on, but a a few of these frozen bodies, because they haven't also dehydrated, you can tell a lot about whether or not they were ill. You know, you can tell better what they've eaten. You know, bog bodies allow you to tell what they've eaten, but a dried out mummy, like the Guanajuato mummies or egyptian mummies it's very it's a i mean it's impossible to tell what they've eaten e- even if they still have their internal organs so a few more frozen mummies include beachy island i don 't know if you're familiar with the Franklin expedition of the Terror and Erebus no there's a i think it's showtime series called The Terror, which is based on a book by Dan Simmons, it's one of the best books I've ever read. And it's based, oh. it's, it's about the doomed Franklin expedition of these two ships. And I'd love to do a whole episode about these ships because the ships themselves and then the crew that crewed them have had a fascinating journey from construction to today. And that sounds weird because at least one of them sank, but anyway, they, they disappeared and there was no word for them for ages. And three crew members were found buried, frozen, a beachy island, which is north. It's, it's, I think, it's in the Northwest Territories. And them being found gave clues as to what happened to the ships, because they had disappeared. But at least it was known that they had gotten there, because this was a very old, timey trip, and they didn't have they didn't have telegrams. They didn't have Wi-Fi. You know, they had. They had letters and ships and like lanterns <laughs> and guns.
0: That's about it. <laughs> so, did one of them survive? The ships? No, one of the crew members. This is all kind of ringing a bell, and I feel like one of them survived and like walked so or
1: something. The story. I'll go. I'll go real quick. So, okay, Franklin and Crozier, which who was the like co-captain, and then. There was another captain whose name I don't remember. And on the two ships, we're trying to find the Northwest Passage. Right. They got ice locked and they never got unice locked. Franklin died. And then these other guys died on Beachy Island. Franklin wasn't buried. We don't know where Franklin died. In the book, The Terror, it's a spectacular death, but it's probably not accurate. (laughs) I'm just guessing. (laughs) It's a great book. Uh, But I'm just going to guess that some of it, at least, is not historically accurate. But it makes for an excellent story. And then, so these guys were buried. They went on. They got ice locked for years. It's thought that the Erebus sink and then the Terror got moved around with the ice. Because something that I didn't know was that ice flows move and rotate. Even if if the ice has locked the ship in place, the, the ship will still move with a big chunk of ice.
0: Oh, And so it's
1: thought that some of the Erebus and Terror crew that did survive walked from the Terror trying to get to land. And who got there and whether or not they got there is a lot of conjecture. Okay. Uh, But there's a fair amount of evidence that they got farther than you would have expected. It's such a good book, The Terror, Dan Simmons. He's a great writer. Nice. Uh, Another very informative Frozen person would be the Mm -hmm. Iceman, a.k.a. Otzi. So not the, or Otzi, probably Otzi. Not the Mafia hitman, but the frozen guy that they found in the Alps, technically on the Italian side, but Austria has done most of the research on him. He was very, very well preserved. He froze to death. And they think he froze to death because he had experienced several illnesses in his life and may have been ill when he traveled. And Swiss Alps aren't exactly, you know a walk in the park, so unfortunately he passed away. And he's now in the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Italy, but first he went to the University of Innsbruck and he's just given us a lot of information about what Italians were like at the time. These people can be very informative and a lot of times they can end up being treated respectfully. It's just unfortunately more often than not, they turn into like Fertilizer, or mummy brown, or a party trick, or a paperweight. God. We'll go into, these are also sort of like frozen and dried out. <laughs> the South American mummified children, a.k.a. the the children of Uyayako. There's a lot of double L's. So the children of Uyayako, they died of exposure. They were likely drugged. They were treated really well before they were drugged, and then they were set in a tomb in the Andes. They were intended as an offering, most likely, and they were not dehydrated like a lot of mummies are, so their flesh is still full looking, and that you can get a lot more information about you know, what they ate, what they were like, et cetera. And they were also, so they were discovered because of a rock slide, They were thought to be contemporary death with the people that found them. They were the people that found them were worried that it was like somebody that died recently.
0: They're currently. Oh wow! Okay.
1: And they provided a lot of information about Andean cultures, Incan burial practices, human sacrifice, which is, I mean, a lot of people like to act like. The Aztecs and the Incas were the only people that sacrificed humans, but they weren't. Uh, We could talk about human sacrifice and what what (laughs) what fits under the definition and what doesn't, but this is about mummies. (laughs) They were, or they are on display in Argentina in the Museum of High Altitude Archaeology. But before that, they were held by the Catholic Church of Salta, and unfortunately. Indigenous peoples disagree strongly with their exhumation and display due to the sacred nature of their deaths and the location, the sacred nature of where they died. And this is a really common uh, problem with moving mummified remains, is that a lot of times they were put there deliberately by people who wanted to put them there, people who wanted to be put there. It would kind of be like in 300 years, someone going to the cemetery and just... Being like, hmm, this is quaint. Let's dig up this person without, you know, actually, we've got an episode on disinterred bodies and the legal rights of disinterred bodies in the United States. And that's not always the case that all bodies are treated that way, particularly if they are considered archaeological and not simply people who are buried. So that's frozen stuff. We'll go on to ancestor worship. I've talked a lot about either consumption You know, for funsies or for medicine of (laughs) mummies. And then also moving them for research. Or, oh, you know what? I forgot to talk about the Siberian mummies. So people in Siberia live in a cold place. I don't know if you knew that. I've heard tell. Are you sure? (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Okay, cool. I don't know how much longer to be cold, but hey. So... There have been people living in Siberia because it's flippin' enormous for a very long time. <laughs> and they don't live in all of Siberia all the time, but a lot of them are semi-nomadic. A lot of them involve like riding horses and stuff like that. Horses seem to be pretty critically important to culture in Siberia, Mongolia, Manchuria, etc. And the Siberian plateaus are such that they have created frozen mummies unintentionally. These people were buried and it was not intended that they be embalmed or saved. But uh, because of how moisture worked, where they were buried, a lot of, it's not a ton of mummies, but it's enough to, again, go to a museum, be sent to a museum, tell us a lot of information about the cultures that we would have probably not known anything about because they didn't write a lot, They were semi-nomadic, and then a lot of their culture was absorbed into, let's say, other cultures. So mummies can be really profoundly informative, but it's, I don't know, I'm just going to emphasize that I think it's really important to think about the fact that they are also people and they have descendants who are still living, and that matters. So then we'll go into ancestor worship. Uh, Cults of ancestor worship do not have to involve mummification. It's just that it sometimes does. It's a convenient way to chat with your ancestors if they're sitting next to you, like literally. In (laughs) Papua New Guinea, it's not uncommon to preserve dead ancestors by smoking their corpses. Uh, The, for lack of a better word, drippings are captured and they might be consumed or used as a massage gel. There's also the... uh, Mummification in South America is extremely common and not talked about, I think, enough. I'm here to talk about it. (laughs) I could have done a whole episode on South American mummies alone.
0: So it's used in massages? Like, come here and rub some great grandma on my back. I don't feel good kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh,
0: okay, cool. All right.
1: And I think it's a way to feel close to your ancestors. I'm not going to recommend the practice. I'm not sure about the public health hazards therein but hey i'm not going to tell anybody to do anything mm-hmm. with regards to that <laughs> smoke on
0: <laughs> smoke your granny yeah it's all, if it's if you do you
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of times we talk about mummies we think of egypt south american indigenous communities have been preserving mummies or for preserving bodies either intentionally or through the use of natural processes like putting them out in dry places for at least 2,000 more years than Egyptians did. The Chinchorro mummies are some of the oldest mummies on the planet. There are ones from 7,000 BC, which is very old. And for around 3,500 years, the Chinchorro peoples of Chile mummified just about everyone in their society, which is surprising in that it was a surprisingly egalitarian way to uh, treat the dead at the time. Versus going through the effort of simply mummifying people who were considered higher status individuals socially. So, the sophistication of the Jinchoro mummification process changed over time. It was in it started with understanding that when corpses dry out, they're mummies, and that's handy, and you can interact with a dried out corpse without getting sick. To Hey, we can paint these corpses. Hey, we can replace parts of them that don't mummify well with clay. Hey, we can we can do a lot more with these people that we care about because they're our families and our friends. And so their process of interacting with mummies involved a lot of repainting of their dead, moving them along because it was a semi-nomadic society, having them placed with the living for certain ceremonies. And so it's just something that like they... We have evidence of a lot of these mummies because so many of the people in this society were mummified for so long. And they're sort of just part of the ancestor worship tradition. There's also sort of visitation of non ancestors. And a lot of times that's wrapped in with visitation of ancestors. And it can be either with regards to religious worship or a lot of uh, high status individuals in societies. I mean, humans kind of have their own flavor of worship for those people. And so, I'm not going to call it worship when it's involving say kings and emperors, but it's kind of a it's kind of a form of worship. Uh an example in Italy, there is a massive crypt system where capuchin monks were initially placed and it was dry enough that the bodies just mummified. And then They started allowing people to pay to be buried in the crypts. So people would come and like picnic with their family members and things like that in these crypts, they'd care for the corpses, dress them in different clothes, talk to them. So visiting with, I mean, it also sort of hammers home people when bodies are mummified and they, people, you know, their descendants know that this is happening. A lot of times they'll want to interact with the bodies. And so, when the people who are mummified are moved or taken to, say, the National Museum in England, or <laughs> the Detroit Institute of Art has mummies, or whatever, it it disrupts something that's really important to people and is worth respecting. I think Buddhist monks were sometimes mummified in honey or preserved in gold statues to be visited oh, I had no and idea. venerated. Yeah, uh, there have been some X-rays of like Buddha statues that have found mummified monks in the statues. It's not super common, but it happens. Oh, huh. Some Christian saints' bodies were preserved intentionally to allow them to be sort of paraded around for veneration. Or some people were canonized, which means determined to be considered a saint in the Catholic Church simply for not decaying which was considered sort of a holy behavior. There are the Muisca mummies, which were from Colombia. These were high-status people, mummified, and they lived in their own houses. They weren't buried, the mummified high-status people. A lot of these mummies are now in museums, mostly in Colombia, but there's at least one in London. And Brits have a lot of mummies. And these mummies were actually carried into battle by the Quichua warriors or Huecha, Sorry if I'm I'm certain I'm pronouncing that incorrectly and I apologize. It was to impress their enemies. So, I mean, that would be kind of terrifying. <laughs> a bunch of people carrying a bunch of dead people.
0: <laughs> are <laughs> to coming say at the you. Least. That'd be a lot. This could be you. Oh, jeez. Yipes. Yeah. That'd be scary.
1: Then there's Peruvian mummies, aka Incan mummies and mummified rulers in the Incan empire became a massive component of Incan society, particularly just before Spanish contact and sort of destruction of the entirety of Incan society. Mummies and structures were typically elites, so people would be mummified and either sort of kind of embalmed and buried, but higher status individuals were you know, kept in structures, and were treated like they were still alive and had thoughts and opinions and needs and you know, were were treated as like partial rulers uh, natural mummification of the dead was done through andean burial and it was often thought as more of like a storage of a kind of living body than burial of the dead i read somewhere someone described it as similar to like a dry seed that can then you know be planted and watered and regrow which I thought was really interesting and these mummies the Andean burials of were often because it was natural mummification it was not uncommon for it to be just sort of your everyday Jose Uh, and so it was the type of thing that these people would be interacted with probably fairly similarly to other ancestor worship behaviors in terms of like There'd be ceremonies around them, and they'd probably be interacted with interpersonally to some extent. The Incan dead were, that were still venerated after Spanish contact and you know, destruction of society, essentially, were stolen by the Spanish in 1559 to prevent continued worship. Some were buried in churchyards, and some were established in Lima's first Spanish hospital for research. They were treated with a surprising degree of respect for a stolen object of worship, meaning that they were carried in, they were treated kind of like venerated Christians or venerated Christian bodies, which is not, you know, what anybody wanted, but at least they weren't like thrown in a truck and with, you know, shovels and rakes and implements of destruction and just trucked off somewhere or burned or whatever. So I'll give a small amount of credit where credit's due. Uh, once Peru were able to establish independence, which was in I think 1821, they were able to do a tremendous amount of archaeological research on the remaining Incan mummies, and they were they worked hard to be respectful, attempts to preserve both the physical and medical physical meanings of the mummies, etc. Uh, one of the major researchers, his name I didn't write down, which is not useful to anybody. <laughs> sorry everybody he he was actually interred with the mummies he worked so hard to preserve and research and things uh, because they were so important to him and it was so important to him that they be you know reconstructed as part of Peruvian society so I think that was just nice a surprisingly nice ending for colonization And I'm just going to talk briefly about museums and universities on their own and where mummies go. Mummies have been, let's say, begged, borrowed, and definitely stolen to be placed in museums. If a mummy is in a museum and not in its country of origin, I came up with some questions that are worth asking. One, how did it get there? Two, did it mysteriously disappear during World War II and resurface later? Again, mysteriously. (laughs) You need to ask that question about every antiquity. Do the descendants of the mummy want the mummy to still be there? Because sometimes museums are sent mummies from people who, I guess would be considered sort of rightful caretakers of the corpse, so that more can be learned about them. So it's not just something where everything is stolen, uh, but it may be intention- you know it may be the intention that the, the mummy be returned. It may be that the university knows that and is going to do it. It Maybe the university might not honor that. Who knows? Some mummies are repatriated. Unfortunately, some aren't. A lot of mummies of indigenous people have been taken from ancestral lands without the consent of the descendants. I've been talking about this a lot. Uh, There's an example just in Nevada of the Spirit Caveman, which may be the oldest mummy ever found. It's in a museum in Nevada. Uh, The descendants thereof that are still living today Uh, would not like him to be in a museum in Nevada. They'd like him back in his cave. But there's also, there are, as the sort of Arab Spring has gone on, there's been a huge spike in black market antiquities purchase and sale, including sarcophagi, mummies, etc. And there's actually a federal operation, Mummies Curse, I believe it's the FBI, working to repatriate and track black market antiquities. And they have returned, and then they, and they return them. They don't keep them to go in the Smithsonian or whatever. They actually get them back to where they came from. And we'll talk about the current black market. There's a current black market for just about everything. I mean, people will actually, like, our, one of our neighbor's houses got broken into, and they stole the... Laundry detergent, because apparently there's a huge black market for laundry detergent.
0: What? (laughs) Yeah. Was it Tide Pods?
1: I don't know. I didn't ask. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a black market for everything.
0: Uh,
1: And mummies are no exception, although currently mummies themselves are less popular than, say, coffins or sarcophagi. Recently, there was a pile of mummy parts, hands and feet and things like that, that were discovered inside a speaker that was on its way to Belgium. Egyptian authorities, so they were Egyptian mummies, they discovered the shipment and are attempting to ID the parts and get them back to where they belong. So it's, I guess, I mentioned that if a body has archaeological value, it's often not treated as if it is a deceased person, but as if it is a thing. And that often works against keeping bodies where they are. But sometimes it works to their advantage in that if something is really old... A country of origin tends to want to keep it around, even if it's just for you know the, the cultural value of understanding it or tourist value, whatever. So I've talked about ancestor worship and stuff like that. Because mummified bodies are often considered really important, sometimes people will hide them. In the Philippines, in certain parts of the Philippines, mummies are possible. Uh, a lot of parts of the Philippines are too damp, It's too humid. But there are portions of the Philippines where mummification has taken place. I don't know if it still does, but it took place for a long time. And the looting and theft that happens to most mummies did happen to some Philippine mummies. But the locals are reluctant at best to share where the mummies are. And a lot of people still know where they are. So they are hidden and presumably intact. And it's because these people are so important to the folks that still live in the Philippines. Oh, wow. And then there's also, I've mentioned a lot that you can get a lot of information from mummies. Uh, There were rumors of Gobi Desert mummies in China in the 16th century of European origin. There are the rumors involved that these mummies were moved and are hidden somewhere in China to help keep people from thinking European contact impacted Chinese history. Now, again, rumors, not facts, but... It's, it's, it reminds me of the Lost Cosmonauts where it's like that's plausible enough to have happened versus, right. like, versus throwing mummies into a steamboat engine instead of coal.
0: <laughs> oh, that Mark Twain. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then I've kind of covered all kinds of places mummies can go. Let's talk about modern day mummies. Plastination. Plastination. It's replacing of fluids and fats with plastics. It's how the bodies in the capital B bodies exhibit are made. It means that the bodies can be touched, sliced, seen. They can travel without as much fear of degradation. So it's a form of mummification.
0: It's very cool looking too.
1: Yeah, I've never actually gotten to see it. Uh, Very cool. I've heard that it makes a big impact.
0: Yes, the, there's one that is a plastinated horse with a rider, and they're both, basically, it's their muscles. Um, it is very cool looking. And all of, these, all of the people that have been plastinated donated their bodies to science. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's less likely to be grave robbing. Right. And then there's embalming. A huge number of people have undergone embalming. It became super popular in the U.S., starting with the American Civil War, to get soldiers' bodies back home. So, technically, an embalmed corpse is a mummy. Our cemeteries are full of them. We've probably seen one or more, depending on viewing practices at funerals. So
0: you may have seen a mummy.
1: I don't know if... I have, actually.
0: So that's technically a mummy?
1: Technically, because mummification is preservation from decay. Okay.
0: Okay. Interesting. I had never considered that.
1: I know. I hadn't until I started researching this. (laughs) There are some really famous embalmed corpses. I'm just going to go over some of them. Uh, Ava Perone, she was so well embalmed that when her corpse was rediscovered in the 70s, she was considered very beautiful and glamorous and was on display for a while. She was embalmed very thoroughly, but then her corpse in a coffin was, I think, just like conveniently lost because everyone was so furious with her. Vladimir Lenin uh, work was ongoing for a very long time to preserve Lenin's corpse. Uh, The sort of incorruptibility of venerated peoples is a component of a lot of societies. And I think Russian Orthodox Christianity, there's a, there's an aspect of the incorruptibility of a corpse being meaningful. So him being preserved was meaningful socially. There's also uh, Jeremy Bentham, who was the sort of first theorizer of utilitarianism. He had his body basically taxidermied and then his head mummified to be displayed at the University College of London. And so they did it. <laughs> so huh. uh, the reason that his head is mummified, but then the it's actually placed between the feet of the taxidermied statue of him with a I think it's a wax head is because the way his head was preserved it looks like an Egyptian mummy but the rest of him looks like a human being so it was just going to be a little weird. (laughs) Alan Bills did research on he was an Egyptologist he did research on Egyptian mummification practices and when he died in 2010 he donated his body to be mummified using those practices as discovered and his body is currently at the Gordon Museum in London. This one has been the subject of many a true crime podcast, but Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos was mummified without her consent by her physician after she died, and he kept her body for a long time, claiming he was in love with her. Oh. So, it's kind of a down note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's mummification is a huge part of human history, and I've just talked for a long time about it.
0: So Emily, um, will you will you smoke me uh, if I die before you?
1: Yes. Okay. <laughs> we got a bonfire set up. I'll just I'll have Nick build a platform. <laughs> we'll go for it.
0: All right. I don't suggest rubbing me on your body.
1: I don't want to.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not on my list. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of funny because it dovetails nicely with our last episode, which was about a massage therapy and the importance of massage in human history.
0: Yeah, that was great. I really, I really enjoyed talking to Victor. That was very cool. Yeah.
1: And uh, then this spooky episode. It's kind of fascinating. Agreed. Not nearly as pleasant.
0: And again, who gives someone mum a mummified hand as a paperweight? That's not
1: a present. And for God's sake, just get a, get a rock from outside.
0: <laughs> it might not it probably won't have a curse on it.
1: It'll probably be a better paperweight too. You're gonna get exactly. mummy all over your papers.
0: Exactly. <laughs> if you would like to have more fun with us and listen to our voices even more, we have a lot of really fantastic episodes on where does it podcast dot com. And you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on the interwebs. Just look for us and you'll be able to find us and, and put your, our podcast in your ears just about anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Leave Yay. us a review. Yeah, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts that lets us know how much you love us.